This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Hello there in class with Carr family. Hello there, Dr. Carr. Hello there, Professor Hunter. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday to you. Uh, you look you look mighty fine, sir. I, oh, you always look beautiful. I'm just, look, I'm happy to be here reading and thinking. Listen, um, first, let me just, a uh, public service announcement. I just want to thank everybody who joined Narrative. Um, we got a message uh, about a correction that needed to be made. And so Urea sent me, you know, what do I do with this? And I was like, fix it. But, you know, more importantly, I said, you know, it is, I feel like we have, you know, you know, when people want you to win or, you know, there's like an expectation of excellence, but right. they're also participating in it being excellent, you know, and as we push towards uh, September and we work on this app and make sure that, you know, the social media space is exactly what it needs to be by the time we launch it. Um, I feel very confident that the folk that are here are supposed to be here because they want to actually participate in the building of something amazing. So I just wanted to just say thank you uh, to the thousands of editors and folk. <laughs> How about that? Moving on by no Wikipedia, this is this is reliable in a, even a whole nother level. Yeah. In fact, one, one of my very good friends, Catherine Adams, who is a professor at Claflin in South Carolina, uh, I don't know how she is a true master teacher. She's one of those true master teachers. She um, um, she has been working through narrative with little children. This summer, she has taken on some elementary school children. I'm talking about six, seven year olds, and she has them doing work. So for everyone who has joined narrative and who is turning on our children to it. Uh, and Kathy has taught high school. She's taught middle school. She has a PhD, University of Massachusetts, African Studies. We went to grad school together at Temple. She's from North Philly and has taught every level, every valence, every from graduate school all the way to the little children. And she's using narrative this summer to, uh, I mean, so. <laughs> I mean, that was the impetus. You know, a lot of people, even we've been talking about, should we have, you know, kids version? And I'm like, you know, your vision, when you talked about, when I asked that question about how did Africans learn before mm -hmm here and you said you know it'd be an elder around a tree all different ages all different you know yeah. everybody would be gathered and you get in where you fit in and, and as as you as we're building this I'm reminded you know even the things that I read as a kid hit differently as an adult you know so I'm rereading beloved I'm rereading now because it looks different to me I picked up Randall Robinson's The Debt which I read a long time ago but now that I know more and I was just um, going through interviews because on Monday on my show, I'm playing a best dub and I, I, I got Dick Gregory's interview that I did out of the crate to play on the air. And I was like, man, I wish I had the opportunity to talk to him now. That was five years ago. Yes. I am so much more informed. I could ask better questions now. So mm. learning, the learning is universal. Yes. As we grow, it hits differently. So there's no kid version of knowledge, right? There's just where you are in the process, right? And so six-year-olds are going to hit it. It's going to hit differently to learn some things. But when they're 14, it's going to get different than they're 30 and then they're 40s. You know, it's just, we're going to, hopefully we're going to constantly keep evolving. And that's, you know, so as I think through, should we have a thing for kids? Yeah. But I watch cartoons. How about that? We read graphic novels and stuff. like it. We all do. That's right. We all do, and we and that's how we learn. I mean, um, 
as we have been talking and folks who are, are watching this on, on the YouTube side, on the front porch side, uh, we've been saying, you know, there's some elements we want to have every time we come together on Saturdays, one being a you should know, and you named the you should know of the day, Dick Gregory. And we also know that part of this exercise here in these short periods we have is to ask better questions. That's the reason we developed the Africana Studies curriculum framework, those six questions, those categories. If we ask better questions, we will look for better answers and we'll always get new answers. Like I said, a lot of reading, as we know, is in the rereading. And I'm working uh, on an advisory board. Uh, the college board is putting together um, a version of a AP African-American Studies, Africana Studies course in the early stages. And I'm very honored to have been invited to be on the advisory board looking over that. And we were having a conversation uh, last week about curriculum frameworks. And I was very happy to be in a conversation where the center of the conversation is how do we ask better questions? And as I was listening to my colleagues and from around the country and thinking through how, we, you know, an, an advanced placement course, what it would look like, I was constantly thinking about, and I told my freedom school students this in the middle of the week, because on Wednesdays I'm with them. And I said, you know, a great deal of my part of that conversation had to do with the work that we've done over the last uh, 20 years in Philadelphia Freedom Schools. And then I thought about us on weekends in this in-class format and then in narrative, which opens up into the whole universe of possibilities. And I realized that, you know, we know that the world we were living in is gone. Well, we do. Some people don't know yet, and they're going to find out, and they're beginning to find out. However, as they find out, there's going to be a search for places where we can have these kind of conversations. And one of the things that is being completely disintegrated is the myth that people can't learn and that you have to pay a whole lot of money, obscene tuitions, sit in places. No. No. So though everybody watching and listening and thinking, this can't be, yeah, no. If you're a PhD student, if you are somebody been teaching at a university for 30 years, if you're somebody who has not picked up a book in decades, or maybe not even ever picked up a book, if you, when, as you're getting something out of this, the thing we all have in common is we all have minds and we can all ask questions. And we, part of our job, that's why we say jailbreak the university concept, we're going to dissolve those borders. So y'all come on and join us. In fact, today is an interesting thing because yesterday was the birthday of the first person we talked about. When you first said, you know what? Let me hit record. I called her a G and then people said, you shouldn't call her a G. And I'm thinking, yeah, you may be right. I mean, that just came to my mind. That's a little violent, you know, and the name of her autobiography, of course, was Crusader Without Violence. But uh, yesterday, Friday, was her birthday. You know who I'm talking about, 159. Yeah. On, yeah. Wait, hold on. Boop. There she is. Oh, oh, right. There she is over your right shoulder. Next. It, it reminds <laughs> me that we have a purpose. How about that? Yeah, oh yeah, that's 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 your that, that's your guy and ancestor over there with Octavia Butler next to Octavia, the great out of Bell Wells Barnett, Holly Springs, Mississippi. That's right. So we said we would have a, a, a you should know. So we won't we won't spend a lot of time on it because what we encourage you to do now 
is go back and look at that long conversation we had about her. But I did just pull, I couldn't resist pulling several books. Get her, get her autobiography. Because one of the best things, if, if somebody told you about their life, and Baba Dick did that, Dick Gregory did that a lot. You know, you should listen to what they say about themselves. Read if they wrote it down, what they wrote about themselves. So get Crusader Without Violence. There's a new edition, as I said, I think when we talked about it last year, I think Eve Ewing, good young sister out of Chicago, did the new introduction. Um, and uh, one of her descendants, I think Alfreda Duster was her daughter. So I think this is Alfreda's granddaughter, Michelle, has done a little book for like middle school, elementary school students called How to Be the Queen. There's a lot of stuff. Paula Giddings did a very good biography, uh, Ida, um, and it named Ida simply. And But I pulled a few things, again, the things you want to, you want to know if you only get one text about Ida B. Wells that's written by her, it's a very good um, compendium that covers her entire life and has a nice chronology. It's nothing but her writings with a short introduction. Some of the, it's called The Light of Truth, Ida B. Wells. There she is when she was young. In fact, I think that's the same picture. No, it's not. It's around the same age. Though. That's when she was teaching school. When we talked about her being in Memphis and then going out to the uh, Midwest, some of those all black towns. There's a Tulsa link, in fact, to the black towns. Uh, that's one. And this book is long. It's almost 600 pages, but because it's all, it's, it's a great deal of her writings, her stuff on lynching, uh, her autobiographical stuff, when she traveled to England, her journalism, she's doing all that. And there's a smaller version of that called Southern Horrors and Other Writings, the anti-lynching campaign of Ida B. Wells. And there, there's that famous picture, which is also on the cover finally of uh, Miriam DeCosta Willis edited this. If you are a young person in particular, and by young person, I mean late adolescent, 20-something, particularly you might get a very interesting read of her. This is something Ida B. Wells did when she was in her early 20s to mid-20s. This is called, the. let me see if I can get the light off, The Memphis Diary of Ida B. Wells. She's writing about being a young woman as a school teacher in Memphis, going out on dates or trying to get dates, men being intimidated by her. Well, what the hell's wrong with y'all? Her talking to her friends Christmas when she's lonely, worried about sending money home to her, to her because remember her parents are killed in the fever epidemic, and then she's got to raise her siblings. So, I mean, it's all in here. The Memphis Diary of Ida B. Wells. So anyway, happy birthday, Queen Ida B. Wells. And uh, for those of you who are in narrative, the annotated version is available. So check that out. Perfect. So there it is. And, 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 and like, see, there may be a couple of books I didn't mention then that I mentioned today, but everything I talked about and we talked about now just pops up. And we have a long list of Black bookstores. Support those Black bookstores because now things are opening back up. So should we should we, should we we talk a little bit about uh, Dick Gregory just for a second? And you should know. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I mean, before we do though, um, because there's stuff going on that- Oh yeah, we'll, we'll save him to the end. Yeah, let's save him to the end because he, okay. deserves, he deserves that. Um, you know, I had on my show this week, uh, journalists from Belly of the Beast who have been doing documentaries and pieces on the ground in, in Cuba. Mm-hmm because I thought it was important to hear from people who are on the ground in Cuba. And um, I just thought, you know, it'd be nice the way we talked about Haiti to have just a brief conversation on what this conflict is as people are in the streets. Uh, by the way, they said that that uh, the, the protests here in Miami are not helping at all. And no, they no. said that the government's not the problem, is the embargoes, uh, the embargo and the sanctions that the United States has placed that uh, under Trump uh, have dramatically impacted the people there so that there's scarce, scarcity and lack and nobody will trade with them. So, I mean, the most poignant thing, their COVID react, re relief and reaction has yes. been five times greater. They have um, 
10 times fewer deaths. Uh, and, and they have their own vaccine because the World Health Organization said they didn't qualify for it. And they said they're glad that they didn't because they would still be waiting. Um, but the problem is they don't have hypodermic needles to administer. And 75 to 80% of the people there are vaccinated because they have two wow. of the top five vaccines. So you got Moderna, Pfizer, Cuba's number three, and then there's another one, I think, from Sweden or someplace. And then the fifth mm -hmm. most effective uh, vaccine was created in Cuba because, you know, they have universal health care and some of the best doctors in the world. So they produced their own way to deal with COVID, and it has been super effective in their, their methodology for um, dealing with people who have COVID. Uh, they have treatments. You know, you don't just sit at home with some Tylenol. They actually have come up with cocktails and stuff. And I think about how advanced they are in the wake of the lack, in the wake of the poverty, the induced poverty, you know, the inflicted mm. poverty. Um, and I, I'm reminded that all things can be done. It was interesting, too, because the young lady that was on uh, from Cuba looks like us. Well, actually, she's darker than both of us. Oh, Afro-Cubans. Anyway. We need the Afro people. Say that. Say that. What were you about to say? Because all the Cubans are black. How about and, that? And and I felt although like the ones we see on television are on the lighter end. It of looks the like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. Oh yeah, like, Ted Cruz. Right, right, right. This is not. This is probably maybe more racial than it is political. And that's how I. Um, oh, there, there's I a great deal of it. Is it. A great deal of it is racial. In fact, um, one of well, one of the points of entry for me in terms of race in Cuba, and first of all, there is a whole library of stuff written about Cuba, the history, culture, race, politics. Um, there's a whole library of it, of it written in English. And if you can imagine that, because the first language, of course, in, in Cuba is Spanish, which means there's there's an explosion. There's more than that in Spanish, great deal more. But just in, in terms of, and I have a, a lot of stuff on, on Cuba, but I didn't pull much of it. I just pulled a couple of representative texts. And when you mentioned race, um, the guy I learned, first learned from, even in conversation, um, is a brother named Carlos Moore, who was friends with another guy who we'll talk about near the end, who actually made transition on this day, uh, uh, on yesterday, on Friday uh, in 98, uh, John Henry Clark. This is a guy who knew him, Carlos Moore. Carlos Moore wrote a book years ago called Castro, the Blacks, and Africa. Uh, this book was written, let me see, make sure to double check the date, 1988. This is in the wake of and around the time of the Cubans sending thousands of troops into Southern Africa, into Angola, to fight the, uh, the frontline forces in Angola, including the South African Defense Forces. In fact, there's a cat uh, who has written a trilogy. Um, his name is uh, Galiges. Uh, Piero Galigis, who has done a book, well, he's done several, but this one I pulled of the three, Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976 to 1981. He has one before this and one after this. And what he says is during the final 15 years of the Cold War, leading up to 1991, Southern Africa underwent a period of upheaval with dramatic twists and turns in relations between the superpowers. Americans, Cubans, Soviets, and Africans fought over the future of Angola where tens of thousands of Cuban soldiers were stationed and over the decolonization of Namibia, Africa's last colony. Beyond lay the great prize, South Africa, 
Piero Bliges uses archival sources, particularly from the United States, South Africa, and the closed Cuban archives, he had access to them, to provide an unprecedented international history of this important theater of the Cold War, uh, late Cold War. Let me pause there to say this. What we're seeing in Cuba today, this is what it's about. All right, we're gonna continue. These sources all point to one conclusion. By humiliating the United States and defying the Soviet Union, Fidel Castro changed the course of history in Southern Africa. It was Cuba's victory in Angola in 1988, same year that uh, my man Carlos Moore published this book, that forced Pretoria, meaning forced South Africa, and we're gonna pull South Africa in a minute because Pretoria is one of those places where we're seeing that's in Gauteng province. In fact, uh, Pretoria is the capital of South Africa. The South Africans renamed it. Last time I was there, I was very, you know, I see they changed all the street signs. Uh, Pretoria is called by, in one of the Nguni languages, indigenous language, Tswane, uh, T-S-H-W-A-N-E, Tswane, Tswane is what they call it Pretoria. That when, say, when they say Washington, like for the United States, when they say Pretoria, they mean South Africa. For those folks watching, don't get you confused. Um, it was Cuba's victory in Angola in 1988 that forced Pretoria to set Namibia free and help break the back of apartheid South Africa. In the words of Nelson Mandela, if you remember, there's a famous picture of Fidel coming to Mandela swearing in as president. And before that, when Mandela got out of Robben Island, uh, got no, Paul's Moore prison, where they had in the last prison he was in. And after, you know, they all, oh, we graduated. There he comes. His first time he left the country, he went to visit the people he said who had helped us in the struggle. Went to see Yasser Arafat. Oop. Went to see Fidel Castro. Oop. Came to the United States. The president of the United States. Welcome. Thank you. Then started touring the Black communities in Black places, the Bay Area, Philly, <laughs> New York City, Harlem, no question. Let me go to the places. But see, y'all acting like y'all didn't help. You, you seem to forget that we needed a waiver. Winnie, Nelson, Autumn Cats that came to the United States after, uh, after they let them out of jail, they needed a special waiver to come to the United States because Dick Cheney, George Bush, and all them friends, they were still on the terrorist watch list. Mandela knew where they was. That's why he went to see Castro. And he said, in fact, he famously said, uh, y'all friends and our friends aren't necessarily the same friends. I'm going to thank my friends and you ain't got nothing to do with it. Anyway, it says in the words of Nelson Mandela, the Cubans, quote, destroyed the myth of the invincibility of the white oppressor and inspired the fighting masses of South Africa. Wait, hold on. So that sounds familiar. Uh-huh. Like Haiti, huh? Yeah. And, and let me correct myself. Race is political. No I said question. It's not, not politics is race. It, it, race is political. So yeah. I just wanted to correct myself. No, 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 no. I mean, and again, we're we not spending a lot of time. Again, all, what we're doing in these sessions is having conversations that will spark us to ask better questions. And we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago and last week we talked about Haiti. You can't trust anything you read in the papers and okay this is my stack from yesterday and i'm telling y'all because you know people say well you can't you should read it okay yeah i read the financial times yesterday the washington post that's even the daily news right why not the washington times that's rebel moon paper no question wall street journal and new york times so when i tell you don't trust it it ain't because i didn't read it it's because i did read it and remember we told y'all the playbook what they was going to do you can check the list off in Haiti, but let me let me stay in Cuba for a minute while we talking about this. Yeah, because I mean, what's gonna happen? I'm nervous when I'm hearing people talk about missiles and. Oh no 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 no! They're not gonna do that. In fact, that Cold War, and again, we won't go into an extensive history. You know what, Professor Hunter? We should get we should. It's like you always call it jazz. We should get a few uh, of these various instrumentalists who know about this, 
and pull together a jam session on the narrative side and just you know let folks talk through that because i mean i'm the thing about it is we almost have to step back to see the larger picture we're too close up and that's what the the western media the social structure category who are africans to other people that's what they rely on because these 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 good and evil narratives these monster narratives that they push in comic books and the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Justice League and Batman versus Superman. That's the way you can get people to focus on individual personalities and then say, well, no, no, back up and look at the picture. Look for the rhythm. Again, look for the rhythm. And if you look for the rhythm, you'll understand. The social structure in Cuba, South Africa, Haiti, China, Vietnam, United States, all the same. We are living in the shift, the shift that really accelerates in the mid 20th century as the Western empire model reforms and then begins to disintegrate. So to understand Cuba of 2021, you have to understand what happens in Cuba in the 1950s in the wake of World War II, because there's a new player on the block, the Soviet Union. There's a re-emerging player that's been around thousands of years that is now shrugging off and saying, you know, I'm going to have a little beef. You know, we got, you know, Mao, Ka-Ching, Ka, Ka and, you know, we got Hong Kong going to try to split off. No problem. Cultural revolution, great leap forward. China. And then the United States is coming into a space where they didn't already try to take the whole damn hemisphere. But then World War II allows them a point of entry to try to expand that scope, World War I and World War II, to try to then reduce the former colonizing mother countries to forms of client states. They call it partnership, but let's be very clear. England, France, they ain't never going to, because Germany then messed up. Germany came in the house and did like that Dave Chappelle gift, knocked over the water, and now everybody's, what's the other? So United States, we, this is our chance, but they can't go all the way, because here go the Soviet Union, like, really? That's what you're going to do? And here go the Chinese, like, really? That's, we really, I.e., okay, let's see what, but then the real players are the rest of the world because the rest of the world has been subject to this expansion of European empire that begins hardcore in the 15th century that is now, ooh, ooh, and then blip, Vietnam, blip, Korea, uh -oh, wait, hold on, wait, wait, blip, 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 Caribbean, blip, Latin America, blip, blip, Africa. Chinese is like, we're gonna help you, we're gonna help you. Russia, we're gonna help you, we help. United States, we're gonna help you, we help. And so the Africans are like, hold on, United States. Look at you, how you treat my cousin, bro. This is not, no, the Soviets, they white like y'all, but they ain't really like y'all. In fact, and the Chinese, they ain't even white. So, you know, I don't know about the United States. So the United States is hurrying up, trying to, trying to, you know, put on some lipstick and some earrings. You know, Brown versus Board of Education, desegregation. <laughs> we got, mm, yeah, I'm still not feeling. So then while they doing that, they also, okay, y'all ain't gonna do that. So I'm gonna have to kill somebody then. I'm gonna have to, you know, assassinate somebody. Y'all you know, around here having votes and shit. You in Chile, huh? Salvador Allende, huh? No problem. When you say 9-11 in Chile, they talking about Salvador Allende, the assassination of Allende. And then you put this Pinochet cat in because you want some thugs in Latin America, remember? Because you might mess around the United States. I'm talking about the social structure now, not the people of the United States. Because people in the United States don't know nothing about this. They too busy watching baseball games and leave it to Beaver. And uh, in about the 60s, you know, getting high and summer freedom and Woodstock and summer soul. But no. Meanwhile, the socialist the United States, this is a battle for empire. This is the grand chess game. Anyway, let me not get too far in there. I have just a context. Oh, this is delicious. 
No, no, I'm just saying this is the context, right? So, so, but the three words we can use usefully in that first category of social structure to think about Cuba, Haiti, any of these places is are enslavement, independence, and interference. Just keep those three things in mind. If you just keep those three things in mind, now you think, oh, with Haiti, let me think, hmm, enslavement, yeah, they fought to be fair, and people keep messing with them. Right, enslavement, and then independence and then interference. And the things overlap, those last two. And you can't understand Cuba if you don't know Venezuela history. If you don't know United States involvement in Venezuela, you can't understand what's going on in Cuba right now. If you don't understand what's going on in uh, United States interference in Venezuela, you can't understand Haiti. Let me tie those together right quick with a three and then, and then focus on Cuba. Haiti right now, if you read the newspapers, watch television, oh, they got the great morality play. Remember we told y'all they was going to do it? Oh, yeah, you got you to interview the people you're going to put in, which they've been doing. Now you got a guy, they come in, they say, bring in the army, bring in the, bring in the United States. Joe Biden, no, the people, only people think that's real are the same people who think wrestling is real. You, you just back up. This, this, this. And then, oh, uh, the organ and then the president of Colombia calls for the Organization of American States, which is a client satellite of the United States and they they've been quiet and then they had a meeting of the UN Security Council oh yeah this is the same y'all can look this is like a coloring book just go and this is what's going to happen now the only question we have now is which one of these groups is going to come together to invade you see because because <laughs> see at this point uh Levi Strauss ain't closed their blue jeans factory Fruit of Loom ain't, ain't closed. They factory where they make the draws you buy at Walmart. In other words, the business that they've put in interference, <laughs> the business hasn't shut down. So this drama, they, they got leeway to let it play. To, okay, was the hit called by these guys out of Miami who want to take over the government? The guy says he's going to be the president after this. I don't know. It's intriguing. Well, they've, they've, they've got the police chief now. They've, they've arrested in Haiti the president of the palace guard in, in the presidential palace. They're interrogating him. Oh, really? It is it? Oh, that's interesting. But y'all looking too close. Back up. Back up. Now, remember the, the people in Haiti, the people. Not ginned up crowds in Miami and Ted Cruz. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rafael Cruz and uh, Lil Marco. Not them. The, the, like they ginning up these crazy so-called pro-democracy crowds. Oh, by the way, anytime you hear pro-democracy, think interference. That's the third word. Interference. All right. Because these people screaming about interference and more black women were arrested day before yesterday down at the uh, state at the Senate office building than were on January the 6th. But they talking about democracy okay you know don't please y'all just think of this is this is wwf wrestling i would have rather have seen randy macho man savage and their brother i just won't see i would rather see them than these fools they got trotting out like jim pasaki and them trying to sell y'all that wwf bs anyway point is they're saying oh are they gonna are they trying to take over the government who this guy come from pause there is a security company uh, what's the, what are the, what are the, CTU security, they're out of Florida. They said, okay, the guy who was like the mastermind, one of the masterminds was being paid by CTU security. And some of these guys were actually trained by the military, United States military. I mean, we said that, right? They train in military people. And so the United States comes out like, well, yeah, but that's not unusual. No, it's not unusual. That's why y'all had to rebrand that place y'all called a school for the Americas in Georgia. 
because y'all train people to overthrow governments all the time, asking people in Dominican Republic. That's what you do. When they overthrew the government, when Aristide was down there, the cats that came across the line from DR to Haiti, all them guys got trained at the, at the School for the Americas, which they've changed the name now, which is cute, but you ain't really doing nothing and now. Did Osama bin Laden and them get trained? Oh, Osama definitely got training. I don't know if he ever, uh, I'm trying to remember if he got trained, he got trained physically in the United States, but of course, the Afghan, in fact, that's one of the reasons why they say bin Laden you know, was mad. Oh, you sold me out. Why? Because the Soviet Union's Vietnam is called Afghanistan. And the United States was the ones, right. Now, does that mean that we are caping for Osama bin Laden? No, that means we're trying to ask a question because at the end of the day, as the man that we're going to talk about in a minute near the end, another of the guys who made transition uh, 23 years ago yesterday, Friday, John Henry Clark used to say, in some stories, it ain't no good guys. <laughs> So don't always be looking for a good guy and a bad guy. Just try to understand the situation so that you can figure out what's best for you, the people you care about, and the world you want to live in. That's a better way of thinking about it other than looking for good guys and bad guys, right? So this Miami business, right, this CTU security is owned by, wait for it, a Venezuelan. And the people they arrested, Colombian. Remember the president of Colombia is the one saying, bring in the old uh, Organization of American States? Well, what does Colombia and Venezuela got to do with Haiti? Remember the, one of the reasons they were mad at uh, Moise in the first place? One of the latest reasons why they were marching in the streets is because the Venezuelans loaned them all this money for relief. And they said Moise and his boys stole the money. And that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Wait, why is Venezuela loaning uh, money to the Haitians? Uh-oh, wait a minute. Who is the leader of Venezuela? His name is Nicolas Maduro. Hold on, hold on. Let me read to you from an article just recently I was reading in a monthly review magazine. As the world reeled from COVID-19 pandemic, Nicolas Maduro, president of Venezuela, solicited emergency loans that the International Money Fund, located down the street here in DC, was making available to member countries. The IMF quickly rejected Maduro's request, claiming that it was unclear if his government was recognized by UN member states. This was an absurd excuse. In 2002, the IMF, which is traditionally dominated by the US Treasury Department, had immediately offered loans to the Pedro Carmona dictatorship after it ousted Hugo Chavez in a coup. Go watch a documentary called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. There was an Irish film crew in Venezuela uh, following, um, uh, following um, Hugo Chavez around. By the way, Hugo Chavez, who passed away but mysteriously came back to life to sabotage the uh, election of 2020. Remember them hillbillies running around saying that, uh, I think even that fool Trump said it, oh, Hugo Chavez, Hugo Chavez is dead, yo. Now we know ancestors are real, but they ain't so real <laughs> that they can somehow invade your computer system. You know what I'm saying? But Hugo Chavez is like saying critical race theory or Sharia law. In other words, this is just one of them boogeymen they use to rally people to go vote while they trying to suppress your vote. But anyway, Hugo Chavez was the duly elected leader of Venezuela and the United States, this is when Condi Rice and them was running around in the White House and Colin Powell and them. They overthrew the government and tried to put in this dude, Pedro Carmona. Go watch the documentary, because see, this documentary should never have been made. It's really ancestral intervention. The Irish film crew 
happened to be in the presidential palace with Chavez's cabinet and all these people when the coup went down. They were never supposed to be there. They never turned their cameras off. So what you get in the documentary, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, is all the shady shit the United States did. And from the inside, you can see them. OK, this is what they're going to do next. And then, and, then, and then you turn on TV and here go the State Department. And then they said, oh, the people are in Caracas. They're, they're protesting. Chavez is a dictator. And then you see the Irish film crew. It's like 20 people in the street. But on CNN, it looked like all these people, because they didn't filmed another street three over where they didn't got a crowd banging on pots and pans. But the reality is there's nobody. In, and then they say, and the Venezuelan army has opened up fire. And then what you see is the Irish film crew shows that the, the army is guarding the palace and they have shot back at gunshots that they heard first. And then they pan and you see nobody in the street and like, one person or somebody up in a building, they're shooting, they're shooting on the crowd. There's no crowd. Y'all are literally what uh, Noam Chomsky and, and uh, Ed Herman called in their book, manufacturing consent. You're showing people images to get them up. So you got a dictator, you got to get rid of him. They're struggling for democracy. But, but the coup only lasts a couple of days because the military won't go along. The U.S. has some hand-picked cats, again, them people, they bring in train, this kind of thing, who want to, yeah, we got we to get rid of this dictator. The guy was elected. Whether they stuff ballot box, they stuff ballot boxes. Those people don't want, hold on. I'm not caping for Hugo Chavez. Remember John Herrera Clark said some stories, it ain't no good guys. But I would cape for Hugo Chavez before I would any president elected in the United States, up to and including this one. If I understand enough about Venezuela, and of course, you know, if for cats like Danny Glover and them who've been down there many times who will ride or die with Hugo Chavez. And I, I, I would rather listen to them and work through the contradictions and complications than from you, because last I checked, we're having this discussion in English because you came and got my ancestors. When the hell you think I'm a, and Hugo Chavez used to run his hair through his head and say, I'm black, I'm indigenous and Spanish, but I'm mostly black and indigenous and the black people in Venezuela have been getting a raw deal and the Bolivarian revolution will now redistribute these resources. And since all y'all wanna buy oil, we're gonna use the oil revenue to get to the people who have never had anything. And we're gonna create these neighborhood associations where they get to decide how to distribute these resources. And they are gonna, and we're gonna wipe out illiteracy. And we're gonna make sure people are able to have a place they can live in. This is what Chavez is saying now. Oh, I should add, remember Hurricane Katrina? And remember George Bush don't care about black people in that moment of lucidity that Kanye West had? Venezuela said, we will send heating oil. In fact, Venezuela sent heating oil in the Northeast, but then the United States shut it down. Venezuela said, you know what? We'll send people to New Orleans. Castro and them was like, we'll send doctors. We, got, we send doctors every time there's a disaster. The United States, while black and brown people are black people, mostly dying in the Superdome, swimming in feces, trying to get something to eat, the Cubans said, we'll send the doctors. The Venezuelans said, we'll send the oil. United States, George Bush flying over, looking concerned. The point is, these people who are in what um, James Monroe, y'all know the Monroe Doctrine, they refer to that since then as America's backyard. The empire America never really wanted to have completely, although the Confederates did. During the Civil War, they said they're going to take the Confederate States of America from the southern part of the United States all the way down to the tip of Brazil. They was like, we just going to take it. But they lost. My point is, and I'm, I'm, I'm bring this to a close when we're dealing with Cuba. America's backyard has always been a place after the period of colonialism and enslavement empire. You then got the question of independence movements, Simon Bolivar, 
who got help from the Haitians. <laughs> they had the Haitian Revolution. They helped Bolivar in them. And that's why you call it the Bolivarian Revolutions. That's why Chavez and them would refer to it. The coaching of independence in the Caribbean, in Latin America, the United States has always, always then interfered to maintain its interest. Y'all go look up the history of the United Fruit Company. Y'all go look at the history of Coca-Cola. You go to all these places, Bacardi rum. And we talked about that with, uh, with Dr. Amin, all these things. Now, fast forward where we are now. Venezuela, the coup didn't work against Chavez. Then they elect this guy now who was there, Chavez died. And the guy they have now, Nicolas Maduro, Maduro has had a hard time. The oil prices have collapsed worldwide. The revenue is different. Okay, now we got a challenge now. Meanwhile, the unrelenting Western powers have all been against him because they don't want no Latin American, no Central American, no Caribbean country that is going to buck American and European companies or US foreign policy or European foreign policy. How do we know that? Okay, go look up Bolivia, go look up a cat named Evo Morales, what happened there. Uh, Bachelet in Chile. Go look, uh, if you want to go back to the 80s, to a brother by the name of Maurice Bishop in Grenada. Every time somebody stick their head up, <laughs> like they're going to buck and then say, not only are we going to buck for our people, we're going to connect with other buckers in the region. The U.S. swaps down and then they make some propaganda. Y'all probably seen that. Gaddafi. Muammar Gaddafi, certainly, as John Clark said, some stories ain't no good guys. But what has happened in Libya since? Thanks, Hillary. And uh, what's that phrase they often say? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Obama. When you see what happens in Libya now, anti-Black racism, enslavement, literal slavery back in Libya, the place is fractured. They can't have a governing bit. They're in Tripoli. Then remember Sirte and all those places closer to the east coast of Egypt. The place is fractured. It's dissolved. And now they're saying, oh, we don't know what's going to happen in Libya. You did it. Now, is Gaddafi completely innocent? No. But... I think I would rather try to figure out what's going on in Libya with them than I would look here and have y'all look in my face and Joe Manchin meet with Texas Democrats the day before yesterday and say, yeah, you can forget the filibuster. Man, just be a man. Be a man. Can you be a man and say that Rupert Murdoch and them, his company gave me all this money and they told me never to break the filibuster? Just be a man. You're a coal miner. If you're a woman, be a woman, Kristen Cinema. If you're a gender fluid, be gender fluid. Just stand up because everybody, regardless of gender identity, has a spine. Stand up for Jesus and tell the people, since you know, you told them damn coal miners their jobs was coming back. I would much rather try to figure out what's going on with Gaddafi and them than y'all. Because <laughs> last I checked, Gaddafi ain't never leaned on no black man's neck for eight minutes and 48 seconds. So the point is the United States always interferes when somebody looks like they're going to buck. And when they identify the people who are the ring leaders or the center of the bucking, they try to take them out. So now here we are in 2021. Cuba 90 miles off the coast of Florida. How come they couldn't get at Cuba? Well, for that, we know something that most people think they know something about because they watch Kevin Costner or something or watch Seven Days in May, same way that people think they know something about Grenada because they watch Clint Eastwood and uh, Mario Van Peebles and Heartbreak Ridge or one of the movies like that. Don't be watching movies for your history. They think they know something about, in other words, the Cuban Missile Crisis because they watch the movie or one of them History Channel documentaries. Mm -mm. 
here's what happened. World War II, as I said, the table been reset. Soviet Union, they got nuclear weapons now. United States got nuclear weapons. And just in case you don't understand what John Herr Clark says when he, when he says in some stories, it ain't no good guys. One of the reasons they were able to get those nuclear weapons is because some of them very same Nazis that were experimenting on Jews and blacks and Roma people who we call derogatorily gypsies, they don't call themselves gypsies, the Roma people. Um, Furpo Carr did a very good book, No Relation, called Hitler's Black Victims. Black people in Germany too, as we know. But some of them very same scientists like Werner von Braun, them, they brought them to the United States and helped them develop that nuclear technology, right? Von Braun got the V2 rockets, the technology to get it. In fact, uh, they made a, and talk about movement and memory in the in the European sense. If you go to um, Apple TV uh, for all mankind, there's a little television series, they got two seasons. Season one, you see the Germans out in Los Alamos. You see the Germans in Houston. You see the Germans testing the Mercury rockets and the early Apollo rockets. These Germans, I thought they were Nazis. They were, but we trying to win. In other words, these people, not your friend. Do you understand? This is foreign policy. It's not domestic policy, but at any rate, well, it is domestic too, because they're going to say national security. That's, that's the excuse they always use when they don't want your babies to get formula or for you getting your tax money back to give it to them, which is why we should pause and remember elections do have consequences. Those folks who that money hit your account last week, that little, you know, $300. If you got somebody in your household, a child six years or younger, or someone six and between six and 17, you got $250 per child. If you got three kids in your family like that, you got $750. If you got three under six years old, you got $900, almost $1,000. That, that, that top, that tax credit, child credit. And even if you don't pay taxes, if you don't make enough to pay taxes, you still got it. If you are registered with the IRS, understand that's because uh, some kind of way, black, brown people and white folk with sense overran the white nationalists in Georgia and put us off and Warnock in the United States, <laughs> put it close enough, in other words, for you to get your money back. So anyway, just in terms of people having election have consequences, that was, a, that was a footnote. Now, the United States is always interfering with these foreign, these foreign powers if they think they're going to buck them. After World War II, the Soviet Union now has the weapons. You can't just overrun them, Stalin and them, then Khrushchev. But here's the problem. Once that table is upset, it ain't never gonna look the same way again. The rest of the world has said, here's our chance to finally get out of that enslavement and its aftermath, which means we're in that second word, right? In the Western hemisphere, again, we do it one more time. Enslavement, now they're in the independence phase, post-colonial phase. 10 years in to the struggles for independence around the world, 1955, dozens of countries of people who are not white meet in Bandung, Indonesia. They call it the Bandung Conference. In fact, mm, that would be too much like lucky. Richard Wright, we know Richard Wright for, oh, look at that, look at that, yeah. We know Richard Wright for, um, Black boy, native son. This is the book that Richard Wright wrote in 1956 called The Color Curtain, a report on the Bandung Conference. That's the same Richard Wright that wrote Native Son. He reported on the Afro-Asian Conference in Bandung, Indonesia. In fact, here's the cover of the book. Show you where they met. There's Bandung, Indonesia, right? India. Africa, China, they all there. And they say, 
here's, here's the subject of the meeting. Who are we gonna team up with? We're gonna team up with uh, the Russians or the Americans? The Warsaw Pact or NATO? Cold War, and they all decide. This is the, this is the other name of it. The official name is the Afro-Asian Conference. The name we know it as is the Bandung Conference is where it met. But what they come out of it is what they call the non-aligned movement. We're not aligned with either one of them. Oh, now we got real problems. <laughs> America got a problem. Russia got a problem. Because <laughs> guess who's, sneaking, who's peeking in saying, yeah, y'all going to do that, China. See, China is an entity into itself. They always plan it like, we're going to run shit. It's just a matter. It's going to be 100 years or 1,000 years, 500. We can wait because we've been around a long time. So they not ever... <laughs> Even when they was with the Russians, they wasn't with the Russians. You see, you see what I'm saying? And this is going to be important in, in, in Cuba in about five minutes. This is going to be this is very important. So what you see then is, this is 1955. This is a year after Brown versus Board. Adam Clayton Powell at the Bandung Conference, trying to convince these people, come with the United States. Malcolm is like, bruh, and Malcolm and, and Powell know each other, you know, over the next 10 years. Dude, don't be carrying no water for the United States. You can't really carry. See, when we think of all of the people we think about in the U.S., we think about them in terms of domestic policy. But we don't necessarily think of them in terms of foreign policy. Within the next two years, people like Kwame Nkrumah and them, they like, look, I lived in the United States. I know Black people in the United States. And I know that they ain't all down with this imperialism stuff. So Nkrumah would come to, 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 to the United States, Kennedy and them like, hey, hey, hey. He'd be like, cool. Now let me go over here and see my Black friends. What are you doing? Yeah, oh, no, no. 1957, Ghana takes its independence, and Krumah sends out invitations. Martin Luther King, Coretta King, Louise Armstrong, Louis Armstrong. Y'all come on home. Tells Du Bois and them, come on back, man. We got a spot for you. United States like, damn, what the hell is going on? There's a famous picture of Martin Luther King in a tuxedo jacket talking to Richard Nixon at the prime minister uh, ceremony. In, in, and, and, and King is saying to Nixon, one of the things he says to Nixon over there is, yeah, it's good to see you. You know, you, right, the president has sent you over here. When we get back, we got to talk about civil rights. Uh, let me make an appointment. But see, Nixon ain't in DC. He ain't in uh, the heartland of America. He in Ghana. And he's the guest. King is a guest too, but it's his cousin getting inaugurated. In other words, bruh, we're going to talk about civil rights, but I'm in Africa, so let's not get this twisted. We, in other words, have friends. And that's when that anti-communist stuff, two years later, Castro and them come out the hills and overthrow the government of, oh, what's my name, Bautista. Bautista's interesting. And when we talk, y'all go back and look at the Haiti conversation we have. Bautista has a bit of a gloss of what we saw in Haiti with Papa Doc. In other words, Bautista is not a complete enemy of the culture of Cuba, and we know the culture of Cuba is the culture of African people at the foundation. But Bautista is also orbiting in a client, and you've talked and you've mentioned him several times over the last several weeks, uh, Professor Hunter, in the DR, Trio. <laughs> you, know, you got these clients that you can manipulate and see, but they are also nationalists. So you can get rank and file people not paying attention. Oh, you gonna let me uh, kill my chickens and have my santeria? Uh, so yeah, man, I'm not sure. Okay, okay. But then you're also always on the line with Washington. All right, what you need, need to do? Okay, all right, cool. All right, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna need a little bit more money. You know, hey, is the new bands out yet? Okay, cool, cool, all right. So this kind of thing, but then Castro and them come through and it smashed the whole thing. 
Now, those of you who don't read a whole lot, but you're beginning to read now, of course, you've probably seen The Godfather Part Two 1,000 times. That's hiring Roth and them on the hotel roof with the gold phone. And Michael, they're going to they gonna move all their operations. After, after Vegas was cool, but now we're going. And what does Hiram Roth said? We finally have partnership with the government. Well, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. Yeah, because you got a client. <laughs> and then, of course, Happy New Year. Everybody's having a good time. And then Castro and them bust out the mountains. And in that famous scene where uh, Michael Corleone kisses his brother in the mouth, I knew it was you. They got to get the hell out of Havana because here come Castro and they're nationalizing everything. No more casinos. No more. Oh, shit. And from 1959, now the United States got to figure out what we're going to do. Because you, you didn't set up the UN to basically be the world police as long as you can be in control of the UN. That's 1945. And Black people are there. Mary McLeod Bethune, W.B. Du Bois, because they too say, we want to be a part of this. But we don't want to be a part of it with you running the world. We want to make sure that you ain't running the world. And this is around the same time that the United States government attacks Paul Robeson, attacks uh, Islander Good Robeson, attacks W.B. Du Bois, Shirley Graham Du Bois, uh, William Alphaeus Hunt and his wife Dorothy, attack all of them, Louise Thompson Patterson, William Patterson, attack all of them for being communists, why? Because they know if you don't get this genie back in the bottle, the color curtain is about to be raised and there's gonna, your empire days are done. You got to get these people. So they put up the UN, they get everybody in the UN. Then they have the UN Security Council, which is the ones that makes the real decisions. And we can just manage them. All right, now, Castro's old. Castro comes to the United States. They make, he's a guest at the UN, whatever. Where does he stay? The Hotel Teresa. Famous picture of him and Malcolm X sitting in the Teresa. Why? He's my people. <laughs> I'll be with them. Between 1959 and the end of the 60s, Cuba is elevated as the hope. But here's what happened. The Russians, remember now, the chess game between Russia and the United States, the Russians like, hmm, you know what? We're going to support you, Cuba. But why do they support Cuba? In fact, there's a number, again, there's a bookshelf full of books. I only pulled a couple to show you all, to just give you a couple of anchors to, uh, to deal with. Let me see if I thought I, I thought I had a whole stack over here that deal with it. I'll come to it. Because I, I like this book because it's it's fairly brisk and quick, quickly written, but it also ah, it also gives us a sense of what's going on. This is by uh, Rafael Rojas, who's out of Mexico City. It's called Fighting Over Fidel, the New York Intellectuals and the Cuban Revolution. I like this book in part because he's talking about how people in the United States, and he's talking specifically about New York thinkers, are reading the Cuban Revolution but he puts it in the context we need it put in as it relates to black people too. And there's a lot of stuff. In fact, I know I have this one Some uh, Here we go. I'll, I'll mention this one in a second. Cuba, revolutionaries, not without race problems. Again, race problems in Cuba too. We've that's what Carlos Moore is writing about in this book, Cast for the Blacks in Africa. Also a book he wrote, a memoir he wrote called Pinchon, where he talks about growing up black in Cuba. He says, different from Afro-Cubans, it's different for Afro-Cubans. And so he talks about the racism even in the revolutionary movement. But the Soviet Union backs Cuba in part because they're trying to figure out how to checkmate the United States. And in the game of chess, the Soviet Union could have a chess piece 90 miles off the coast of uh, America, United States. Fast forward from 59, 60, 61, 62, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Cubans are sending missiles 
to Q to, to Florida. Kennedy, hell no. If them missiles land on this here, we gonna launch. Okay. Some of y'all know this story, if at all, from uh, X-Men First Class or whichever that was when Magneto and them all was down there. In other words, these are the pop culture reference. I mean, this is the tragedy, right? Because if we don't study it, we'd be watching stuff thinking it's good guys. It was no good guys. This is what they call MAD. And this is why there was no nuclear war. MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. Do you know why there was no nuclear war because of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Both sides realize we all gonna die. <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't Kennedy's genius. It ain't, uh, it ain't Kevin Costner and them in the Situation Room, Martin Sheen and them, they done made this damn movie about four times. It's not even the satire of Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> I mean, these people realize if I push this button, it's a wrap for all of us. I'm dying, Hannah's port is gone. My uncle, oh my God, you know, I can't, you know. So they back up, but here's the thing. Between 1963 and 68, there's a window. Why did Cuba go with Russia? Because Russia gave them muscle. Russia gave them arms and told them, you don't have to pay. They, gave, they, they built the Cuban military with a military that's subsidized by a superpower that you ain't got to pay back for. You take the money and the resources you have and plow it into the free education. Uh, Maestre, I mean, there's a documentary talks about how the Cubans then turned around, trained a generation of young people who flooded the island and not lowered, not diminished, erased illiteracy. All the Cubans can read. <laughs> they said, the first thing we're going to do is take this money and train all of y'all. Now, y'all go out and teach everyone how to read. I don't care. You go to the most remote place. Can y'all uh, give me the book? Wait, you have a little library? Yeah, we all can read. But no question. Oh, no, we handled that in 1960. <laughs> in other words, and once we did that, we teach even. Now, you come to the United States where you got functional literate children with high school diplomas because some called social promotion. But anyway, that's a whole nother story for another day. The Soviets are subsidizing this because it's in their foreign policy entry, but interest. But in, by the early 60s, because of the Cuban Missile Crisis, they back up. They don't abandon Cuba, but they take the nuke. They don't. They turn the boats around. Khrushchev, we avoided it, no problem. The United States, rah 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 rah. Genius, Kennedy, shut up. Mutually assured destruction, fool. It's not that hard if you just stop and think about it. They backed up, and so Cuba has a window where. They answer the phone from Moscow every day. And they're developing an indigenous kind of independent system. They're trying to engage in state formation. Remember those three words, they are now past enslavement. They are in the independence phase in that brief burst of time. By the way, an independence phase that does not begin at the end of World War uh, II, but begins in the late 19th century. The thing you read in your textbooks called the Cuban, the Spanish-American War, Foner and them called it the Cuban-Spanish-American War because the Cubans, including the Afro-Cubans, want Spain and the United States out. So when the United States goes down there in 1898, they're trying to pick up a little cheap bargain. We're going to help y'all fight the Spanish. And the Cubans is like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And them Black people who are in your army, they call them smoke Yankees. And we like them. And so Black people in the United States and Black people in the Cuba start vibing in the late 19th century. They come back to the United States and start naming their children Cuban names. Antonio Macheo, the bronze titan of Cuba, this Afro-Cuban in the army, they so impressed with him. These Negroes come back, put an American accent on it and start naming their children Maceo. That's where James Brown saxophone player got his name from. I'm saying the Cubans, they're the Afro-Cubans. So they've been striving for independence for years. 
But by the 60s, they got this window. And here's what happens. That's why I pulled this book by our brother, Amiri Baraka, who at that time was known by Leroy Jones, right? He did a book of essays called Home. And there's a famous essay in here he writes uh, in 1960, after he goes there, called Cuba Libre, 1960. Castro invites all these Black intellectuals down there. John Henry Clark goes. Harold Cruz is down there. You know what I'm saying? Come on down, see what we're doing. Ask any question you want. Now, we know Castro's a propagandist. We know he's a genius. We know the white Cubans and the black Cubans all are on the same page, but we also know that compared to the United States, it ain't even no comparison. And then that brief period from 1960, 61, the Cuban Missile Crisis, 62, Soviet Union backs up, 63, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. This is what he's writing about in Fighting Over Fidel. There's a window and Cuba gets burned into the black American imagination as the free space. And here's what happens during that period. Robert Williams, Mabel Williams, we talked about them, Negroes with guns. They put them on the FBI's most wanted list. They was like, damn, they escaped. Where are they? Where are they? Look up. This is Robert Williams, Mabel Williams, broadcasting Radio Free Dixie from Havana. Damn! Castro's like, come down with us. Anyway, Cuba hasn't been abandoned by the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union and the United States have agreed, no, we ain't gonna, but so they still got the pipeline, but they don't have the muscle they had in the same way. And so you still can't interfere with them. So now you gotta go to the third phase, which is interference. You gotta figure out another way. So all them white people, and as I did say, white people who speak Spanish, you call them Cubans, who Castro ran out in the Godfather part two and took their casino, they, they ended up in Miami and New York. Them is them Cubans that you see on TV in 2021 and their children. We need democracy. I can't go to Cuba. No, y'all mad because Castro, first of all, Castro was y'all's friend. Castro, white Cuban too. He went to school with y'all. He committed class treason. It's a class issue. So all them people end up in Miami and stuff, they mad because they was millionaires. <laughs> they wanted Hiram Roth and them down there. They gonna run this wrong. We can't really, wait, you ran us out. Someone went to Puerto Rico. Because remember, the United States did decide they're gonna pick up Puerto Rico as a cheap territorial colony to this day. <laughs> you know, they go, but, but most of them came to the United States or went other places. So I'm saying that to say this. But here's what happens in 63, four, five. Malcolm and then started talking Cuba hard. Cuba says, we will, we will protect you. A little bit later, beyond that window, another sister, falsely accused, her comrades break her out of prison. To this day, they don't know how to do it. She's on the, new, she's on the most wanted list with Angela Davis and them. Her name was Joanne Chesimard, which is what Chris Punk Christie still calls her. And she didn't come off the, new, the most wanted list, including during Obama's period. And that will come Barack Obama in about 30 seconds on this. But that ain't what she called herself. Her name is Asada. Asada Shakur. The Cubans say, come down here. So every time somebody go to Cuba, where's Asada? You fool, we ain't telling you where Asada is. Just know she ain't got her. When Obama, Michelle Obama and Barack Obama went down there to see Raul Castro, one of the things they talked about was, you need to give us Asada Shakur. So you, so you, you, you people who are always like Obama, 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 yeah, Obama, Obama, Obama. Go look at Obama's foreign policy. Obama was the president when Libya happened. Obama went to Cuba and asked for Assad Shakur's return. In other words, come on, y'all. He was the American president. He wasn't your president. 
understand the social structure. Yeah, he was cool. He had some swag and yeah, he did some other things. He also allowed for the budget to continue and to expand to give their damn police equipment that they had in the streets of Baltimore that I saw my own eyes after Freddie Gray was killed. And in Ferguson, uh, that happened under Obama. You understand? So don't be, you know, now he's on with Bruce Springsteen and his podcast. He writing talking about, uh, if I, they would have been upset if I had done more. Bruh, it's all good. I'm not mad at you. See, when you understand, you don't get mad. Because in some stories, it ain't no good guys. <laughs> you understand? I'm not mad at Obama. I understand. You was the president. I didn't have any expectations. Did I vote for him? Sure. Because why not? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I understand we might get a nickel more for this and that. But I don't look as a, he's not a savior. Rosa didn't sit so Barack could fly. Got to put them t-shirts up. Now, that's not movement in memory. So at any rate, what you then see is in Cuba, for that window, they become a symbol of revolutionary power. Then... Now we move into the 70s and 80s. Structural crisis in the global economy, energy shortage, this kind of thing. The United States still interfering with other governments. The European Union still interfering with other governments. By the time you get to the 80s, now you got a real problem. The problem you have is the Soviet Union is teetering. By the end of the decade, it's going to dissolve. Cuba's gonna lose its ATM but they've already built internal capacity. So they can kind of go along and they continue to try to link with the other countries around them. The English speaking Caribbean, we ain't trying to mess with Cuba, why? Because the United States got us on lock. And every time we try to get out of pocket, Norman Manley in Jamaica, for example, who was a socialist who said we can do, oh no, they take us out. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? They undermine us. There's all. There's a whole nother story there in terms of hip hop. Y'all go look at the history of hip hop. Uh, Edward Siaga, who ran against North, that member, uh, Bob Marley had them had the Unity concert and he had them at the One Love concert after Bob Marley had been shot. A lot of that political violence is being funneled through Siaga. And when you look at who's paying Siaga, you might say, oh, the United States is always one step behind looking at what's going on. Cuba still, however, somehow survives. Some of it is because of the charisma of, of, of Castro. Some of it is because you have the United States as an enemy. See, the United States was smart and Obama understood this. One of the reasons the United States has been able to crack Cuba is because the United States is a white nationalist country. If y'all was a little less racist and said, let's open up our economy, then you send every Carnival Cruise Line boat in the world to Cuba and flood their economy. Because here's the thing children and teenagers don't understand. They, they know revolution, but that's a nice boat, man. And I can, how much more money can I make in private enterprise? In other words, capitalism has always learned the lesson that you can overcome revolutionary spirit if you can put enough lollipops in a kid's hand. But the United States so racist. <laughs> We're not letting any flights. And then remember what Obama did when he went down there? He opened up trade. Carnival Cruise Lines. He's putting these hotels in them. He down there with the people from, uh, what's the one with the S? Sheridan, all them. Uh, uh, um, Paris, uh, what's her what's her daddy's uh, Hilton? All them, you know, they're gonna go down there. They're gonna reopen. In other words, we can get back to what we was gonna do in the fifties. In a minute, we'll have Harold Roth people down here. But Trump and them come in, white nationalists, and shut everything else down. Damn, <laughs> we was getting ready. We thought, now where are we now? This is where we are. You just said it. Karen. COVID took put in play something that might look very different had there not been COVID. Because what do people say? You know, when you see something like this, it accelerates trends. It doesn't, um, it, you know, it doesn't create trends. Sometimes it accelerates what was going to happen. Here's the problem. And again, I'm going to read from this piece in Monthly Review. He says this, says that uh, 
uh, Bachelet said in March that due to the COVID-19 pandemic, sectoral sanctions should be eased or suspended. She added benevolently that the people in countries targeted by the United States sanctions are in nowhere responsible for the policies being targeted by sanctions. So what Bachelet in Chile is saying, let the Cubans have money. You're saying they don't have a legitimate government, but you're trying to prop up a guy who you want to be the, 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 the president of Venezuela named Juan Guaido. He even looks like a cartoon character. They made this guy up. He's storming. The, they got people protesting for democracy. Go look at the documentary Revolution Will Not Be Televised. There's nobody in the street. Y'all made a guy up. He comes to D.C. to meet. Then he goes down there again. He's back and forth. And when he's in there, you, you, you film him trying to climb over the, the fence. Spit, let the people speak. Those are the rich people, the people who don't want to spend the money. But here's the point, though. Here's the point. Oh, wait. A raid by U.S. mercenaries who had been hired by Guaido and his allies was easily snuffed out by vanilla Venezuelan military with help from armed fishermen. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo denied direct U.S. involvement. What does that mean? Then they started saying, Guaido, this is a couple of years ago, we want 2019. We need to free the Venezuelans. They got a dictatorship. Then Guaido comes and says, we want aid. We need humanitarian aid. When you hear humanitarian aid, be very careful about who's asking for it because that's not, they want to get in the country. The Venezuelans figured it out. It's like, you stay out of here. Pompeo's like, we don't have direct involvement. Right, you got a proxy. But what, what goes on in this article, and I'm looking for the, uh, um, oh, in March, 2020, the United States began imposing sanctions on foreign firms that trade with Venezuela. So they said, we got to get rid of Maduro because they got capital. And the other thing she was saying is, it looked like the Venezuelan economy was getting ready to rebound. Oil prices going back up. They're getting ready to have resources. This is a problem. The United States imposes new sanctions. John Bolton writes about it in his book, The Room Where It Happened. I got that, but only because I found it for $3 somewhere. I wasn't going to buy that book for it. Anyway, the point is, but he got it in there. You know, Bolton is no hero either. Look at John Bolton. He was courageous. He, he critiqued Trump. Y'all stop watching TV like it's WWF wrestling. John Bolton is an imperialist. He is knee deep in it. He is in the room. Venezuela looks like it's getting ready to rebound. The United States imposed new sanctions and then told companies to trade with Venezuela. Y'all stay out of Venezuela. Then they try to take Maduro out directly. It is also announced a Wild West style bounty on the head of Maduro. The United States announced a bounty and other officials based on drug trafficking allegations that were transparently political in nature and in some instances, totally preposterous. For example, it was alleged that Maduro's government intended to flood the United States with cocaine. This is what the US State Department is saying. Fast forward to today. And I'm gonna wrap this up. Fast forward to today. Do you know that the narco traffickers who get their stuff in and out of Haiti and really like Haiti for that reason, because of the lack of security and they don't have the infrastructure to deal with it. They are Venezuelan narco traffickers who cut, wait, oh, I'm sorry, no. They are Colombian narco traffickers who use, Venezuela, uh, use Haiti as a staging ground. The US said the Venezuelans trying to flood the United States with cocaine when in fact it's Colombian drug lords who doing it. Oh, I'm sorry, who's the one that said that the OAS should invade Haiti? Oh, the president of Colombia. Uh, where were most of the people who put the hit on, they, they've arrested? Oh yeah, Colombia. Y'all be y'all pay attention. So now, so what we're watching in Cuba, oh, I'm sorry, who was helping Cuba when they had resources and the Soviet Union collapsed after 91? And uh, oh, Venezuela. We looking at Haiti, 
we looking at Cuba. Don't say Haiti or Cuba without saying Venezuela. And understand that the role Cuba played with backing from the Soviet Union and then backing from people who could get free a little bit and give them resources was like the military the Soviet Union helped Cuba build. They sent to Angola in 1988, they defeated those forces, and basically that was the crack in the foundation that destroyed apartheid, and Fidel Castro gave a famous speech, y'all can find it online, famous, you'll be, be talking six, seven hours, a famous speech in Havana, and at one point he says, the blood of Africa runs through the veins of all the Cuban people. We are in Africa because we have an obligation with these resources. They flooded Southern Africa with soldiers the same way they flood Latin America and the Caribbean with doctors. In other words, if we're going to be revolutionary, it does no good for our little 11 million people in this country to do what you said, Karen. Develop. In fact, this is what they said. Russia and China tried to give them COVID-19 viruses. The Cubans refused. Vaccine. Vaccine. Say it again. Vaccine. Vaccine. I'm sorry. Not viruses. Vaccines. Thank you. <laughs> They might not viruses. Not viruses. No, I'm not. They might have tried to. <laughs> that's right. It's not. Yeah, but we had no. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, but here's the thing. It's what I said before. China and Russia is in their interest. Vietnam. They trade with Vietnam. The Vietnam government, Vietnamese people, Vietnam, Vietnamese government, and the Chinese government both told the Cubans recently, "Y'all need to introduce some free market principles into your government." Now, what we've seen in the last week or so, uh, Miguel uh, Diaz-Canel, uh, the president of Cuba now, after uh, Raul Castro, after Fidel Castro, the new guy, he said, we are going to do some things in the government. We're going to um, unify the currency. We're going to legalize uh, some private businesses. In other words, we're going to open up the economy, but we have to be careful because this isn't a dictatorship. See, this, see the, the Communist Party of China is called the Communist Party. But make no mistake about it. They didn't set up a constitutional form of government. Like the Cuban people, you say, oh, they're dictators. Do you really know how these forms of government work? The Cubans have been playing a remarkable game of independence with this huge white nationalist behemoth 90 miles off their coast and in the middle of geopolitics where one side collapsed and the, and the non-aligned movement countries have had to pick sides. They done basically broke most people. And if, and if some of these countries try to buck now the United States is in a position with the EU to come in and then China on the other side saying, we're going to give you all these loans and build all the highways in Ghana and put the new landing strips in Tanzania. Meanwhile, they're extracting resources because China is that Cuba, that little island is remarkable. If for no other reason, then how the hell did you stay independent? So they come and say, we'll give you the vaccines. They said, no, the UN, COVAX, they didn't sign up for COVAX. Why? They said, we got doctors. And we're going to have our own, and we'll have 70% of our population inoculated by August. And they named their most effective. They just announced the other day it's 93% effective according to their trials. Uh, the name of it, oh, what's the name of their, uh, their they, have two, name? they have two vaccines. They do have two. Uh, um, uh, Abdallah. Abdallah is the vaccine. The other one is the uh, Soberon 2 or something like that. Yeah, uh, but Abdallah is the one named after a poem by one of their national heroes, a guy by the name of Jose Marti from the 19th century. But their thing is, we got doctors. And they'll train your son a daughter too, if they want to come to Cuba. But part of the trade-off is, you can come, you can get a degree for free, but now you must use part of the time that you are a doctor helping other people. So we send you on medical missions. So, so I, I just say all that to say, as we're looking at what's happening in Cuba, that is America attempting to use this crisis 
to pick up a bargain. And while they're in Cuba trying to finally get their hands on the Cuban economy, they're also in Venezuela trying to make sure they can turn off the, the, the money and the funding. And in Haiti, they're in there as well. And they're in there because nothing, because they've always wanted to ensure their business interests or the interests of those who the lobbyists, that kind of thing. And you don't let a good crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. COVID, and this is all COVID-19. This is not, <laughs> this is not, oh, all of a sudden, no, this is COVID-19. So if you're trying to figure out, well, what happened if they're in the street now? Number one, people are in the street for the same reason you would be in the street if they don't have nothing to eat. People are trying to survive because what suffers in geopolitics are the people who live in these countries. But don't confuse that with anything coming out the mouth of Joe Biden's side or Marco Rubio's side. Marco Rubio is owned by them cats that's trying to go back and have their villas again. And Joe Biden is representing the United States foreign policy, which is not your interest. So you got to be very careful and not listen to these folks. And so, you know, in, in Haiti, we know, oh, so I should end with this, though, because we said we're going to talk about South Africa, too. And I won't go deep into South Africa because that's a whole other thing. But you can use that same paradigm, except take out enslavement. Take out enslavement and put in colonialism. Because in, in fact, in fact, pause, let me pause. Let me rethink that. Enslavement is closer to the reality. Of course, that's what happened to us in the Western Hemisphere. But both enslavement and colonialism could probably be subsumed under another label, imperialism. This is all empire. All the colonies in the Western Hemisphere were empires. They try to extend empire, the French, the Spanish, the Catholic church, whatever, the English, all empires. Coming into Africa, settler colonialism is a form of empire building. So let's say imperialism and then that form of independence resistance and then interference. So why does Castro and them have to come in Southern Africa in the first place? Because what you have in South Africa is an empire. There are two empires there. And let me let me see here, 1052. Let me take just about 10 minutes on this and I'm just gonna do this right quick. The invasion, the European invasion of South Africa, you can usefully think about it in terms of two major form, uh, two major groups of Europeans. One, the Dutch, the Boers, Dutch East India Company, uh, 1651, 1652. They still got statues in South Africa. I've seen them myself. Every time I take students to South Africa, um, Jan van Riebeck. Every school child in South Africa knows who Jan van Riebeck is. The Dutch East India Company, international capital finance, right? Um, they got plantations in India. They try to take over uh, South Africa. In fact, remember, sugarcane is not indigenous to Africa, Europe, or Latin America or the Caribbean. It comes out of the East. But how does it get to the East to the West? Settler, colonial, imperial interests, usually multi, the early multinational corporations of which there is no more powerful one early on than the Dutch East India Company. It's the same one we all learned about at elementary school, except we didn't know enough to know we shouldn't be rooting for them. <laughs> Dutch East India Company, British East, British East, all right, British East India Company. So remember East India, that's they coming from that way. And then another three centuries before that, Marco Polo and them. That's the story for another. Again, we learned all this stuff like we was in it when in fact we were the victims of it. So the Dutch is one, the other is the British. British come after the Dutch. After enough years, now we're talking from 1652, 1750s, 1850s, by the mid to late 19th century, the Dutch now have been down there for 250 some years. So they're not from Holland no more, you know? 
So even when Biggie asked, where Brooklyn at? Where Brooklyn at? Brooklyn is in Holland. <laughs> but the people who live in Brooklyn don't know that because they've been in New York City for centuries. <laughs> they don't even know that name is <laughs> from Holland. Brooklyn, in fact, one of the founders of Brooklyn settlement in terms of settler colonialism empire was a black man in what is what they call another place in Holland, Bushwick. So even those names are Dutch names, but you've been here so long, it don't matter. Same thing in South Africa. The Dutch there now, they don't call themselves, they call themselves the Boers, B-O-E-R-S. That's where that name comes from. The Boers are the settlers. The In fact, Boer means farmer in Dutch. And they've even developed their own language, just like Ben Franklin and them, and, and then Noah Webster and them were like, look, we don't speak English. We speak American English. Then that's when Webster puts together his dictionary of American English. Why? Because it's not... The Dutch in South Africa come with their own language that's Dutch, but it's got all this other stuff in too, including some indigenous stuff because they didn't bad here messing with these people. They call it Afrikaans. Now we don't even call them Boers. We call them the Afrikaners. The Afrikaners, <laughs> that's who they are. He's the Dutch. The British are not the Afrikaners. In fact, I learned this before I went to South Africa. Then I experienced it the first time. And every other time I've been there since, I just sit back and watch. If you want to see something funny, you get some white South Africans together and make sure that you got a couple of Afrikaners and some British background and just, you know, you're sitting there listening, then ask them this question. You know, I'm from the United States. I've never quite understood the Boer War. Could you tell me, what is the, what was the Boer War? And you sit back and watch the fight begin. Here's the thing, whiteness disintegrates because by the end of the 19th century, the British got enough power. They're holding the Cape province, um, Oh, and there one other. I can't think of where they were. They were in the Cape. And um, anyway, it'll come to me in a minute. Oh, Natal, Natal province. Some of y'all around here watching, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Michael, uh, who played Batman's butler. Um, oh, Mr. Wayne, uh, Bruce, I failed you. I failed you. Uh, I can't think of his name. Michael Caine. Michael Caine, they made a TV, uh, a movie years ago called Zulu. Right. When you think about the Zulu, it's not the Boers fighting the Zulu, it's the British fighting the Zulu. Natal is in the east, Cape is in the east and the west. And then, but the Boers have moved inland. So if you look at South Africa, the bottom of Africa, like a U, when they land, Cape of Good Hope and stuff, they start going inland. And as they go north and east, they settle in two places they call the uh, Orange Free State, the OFS. And, hmm. Oh, Paul Kruger, Paul Kruger, Paul Kruger, Krugerrand. Oh man, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, oh, the Transvaal. The Transvaal and the Orange Free State, they're inland. England decides they want the whole thing. So what do they do? They start a fight. In England, they call it the South Africa War. So I call it the Boer War. It's the British versus the Boers. The British versus who become the Afrikaners. And the British are able to bring the whole thing together and people ask, how old is South Africa? Technically, the Union of South Africa after Anglo-Boer War, 1899 to 1901, which is considered the first world war, well, the first major war of, of empire as Europe begins to fight itself of the century. The Union of South Africa started in 1910. 1910. In 1910, they have a governor general. Why? because the British took over. And Professor Hunter, who is the head of state in Great Britain? At that time, 1910? Yep. 
who is who is the who is the technically i'll say technically that, say it again is it churchill damn it no 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 you thinking prime minister you thinking oh, about oh you africans y'all had kings and queens hey last i checked the people where the queen is in charge is you the king the george the fifth becomes the first ruler of the union of south africa in 1910 and the last ruler, the last queen of South Africa Elizabeth. is still alive. Elizabeth II. That's exactly right. I'm saying this is not ancient history, y'all. <laughs> you understand? They made, they made it a monarchy. It's part of the Commonwealth. So I said 10 minutes, so let me hurry up. Then what you see is in 1910, they had the Union of South Africa. What are Black people doing? Right? No, whichever side go free us, just like we did in the American Revolution, just like Civil War, whatever we're going to do. In 1912, two years after they make the Union of South Africa, the black people get together and say, we need a political organization to fight for our independence because we thought we was able to go and crack through that. And they haven't been enslaved for all that time now. Shocking them is 1820s. Sesquayo and them, 1879, the Shalawana, the Zulu defeat the British, the Battle of Blood River. You, I mean, in other words, they haven't stopped fighting. Then they got some people who go into white schools, lawyers, newspaper people. And in 1912, two years after they formed the Union of South Africa, the British take over. The Africans, mostly uh, Kosa people, but also some Zulu. This is going to be important with Zoom in a minute. They found something called the South African Native National Congress. We now refer to it as the African National Congress. S-A-A-N-C now becomes the ANC. That's Mandela and them. That's in 1912. In fact, Nelson Mandela was born a couple of years after that. And then during the period from 1910 to 1961, those Boers, those Afrikaners who were defeated, they didn't go to, uh, to Holland. They're not from there. They take over and keep their little states, but now their states are part of the Union of South Africa. They build political strength. And finally, by the 1940s, they are able to win the national elections. And by 1946, it is the Boers, now the Afrikaners, who put together the legal system of South African Jim Crow, which they call apartheid which is an Afrikaans word, apartness. <laughs> we are going to put legally, now that doesn't mean they the one start. The British, under the British, when they had the Union of South Africa, they do the Native Land Act. They take all the land from Black people. And they, they are criminals. But the Afrikaners' whole identity is much like the white people in America. If you go to South Africa, they got monuments where they show how they call it the Great Trek. They're in covered wagons, y'all. Going through, they fighting, in the, except they're not fighting the Comanches, they fighting the Zulus. No, it's the same narrative. <laughs> and they got the Bible and they got, you know what? These are the same people y'all used to watch on Little House on the Prairie and used to and, and root for Paul Ingalls and them and don't realize these are settlers. They are going out, they teach us the story. It's the Afrikaners of America. That's who they were, the great Western people. Anyway, y'all think about that. So now by the 1940s, they are able to do that. And then they move to a state president model. Why? Because in, by 1961, this is what happens. Remember, World War II has happened now. South Africa was an ally with the German. I mean, South Africa's on the good boy side, right? Not against, against Nazism stuff. Okay, but hold on, hold on. What's going to happen? Oh, my God. What happens is World War II sees the non-aligned movement explode. By then, Nelson Mandela's there. 
the young guys now in the in the African National Congress, they call it the African Youth League, South African National Youth League. They got an arm wing, arm struggle, Unconto with Seasway, Winnie Mandela. Now. You got some Zulu cats in there. You got all these people, uh, uh Mangaliso Lazy, them young guys. You got people like Robert Sabukwe and them, Suzulu and them. You got lawyers, but you got people who will blow some shit up. And for the next 20 years, they're engaged in a liberation struggle. And Great Britain is not backing them the way they want by 1961. What happens in Southern Africa? The white nationalists say, we got the power to break this up. In Rhodesia, they eventually do something called the UDI, the Universal Declaration of Independence. They go on straight white nationalists in Rhodesia. I'm sorry, Cecil Rhodes was a British guy. They ran out of South Africa because he had empire building as well. He went north to some territory he called for himself called Rhodesia. When the Africans took over, they named it Zimbabwe. He's still buried there. John Henry Clark used to say, where, 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 where Cecil Rhodes is buried, they should dig him up, put six mangy dogs in the hole, put him back in the hole, put a boulder over him, and write on it, the grave of the seven mangy dogs. <laughs> in other words, in other words don't, don't, don't let him stay, but dig him up, put some dogs down in there with him. That's who Cecil Rhodes is, you Rhodes scholars. But at any rate, in fact, the South African children took care of that years ago, about five years ago, when they said Rhodes must fall. And they took that statue down that I know well because I used to stay in the dorm with the students, Smuts Hall, right next to the statue. I used to spit on it every morning. Can't do it no more. It's gone. The students got rid of it. Then the students in Oxford in England said, and hey, we don't want no more. Rhodes must fall here too. In other words, Rhodes must fall and the Rhodes Scholarship. I don't care what y'all, anyway, it's a whole nother thing. Y'all social structure lovers, you can keep doing your Rhodes Scholarship. Henrik Ververde, BJ Vorster, all these guys come under the second phase. Now South Africa doesn't have a queen. They running their own thing, state president, because they declare independence too in 61. They changed the flag, but that's when the thing escalates because you got Ververd, who's considered the architect of apartheid. You got Verster, who comes after him. They're prime ministers now. And then you get P.W. Botha. The Afrikaners are running South Africa, but the movement is getting stronger. Botha's the president from 78 to 84. That's as Southern Africa is fighting. And eventually now in 1984, they move to the executive president uh, uh, the executive president model. And, and that's when you see P.W. Botha become the last white president. Because then after Castro and them defeat them and de defeat their friends in Angola, the thing is cracked. And what has happened in the 70s and 80s, you put Mandela in jail in the 60s, you put them guys in jail in the 60s, the thing continues to build international anti-apartheid organizations. They're fighting in Africa. By the 70s, the next generation of young people, Steve Biko is killed in 77, but those young people in Soweto and all of them are fighting back. And you got, now you've been declared emergency, you can't hold it no more, and you realize you can't, so then you transition. And guess what? This is where the constitution comes in and we end with Jacob Zuma. There's a, there's a shelf of books, I only picked one. This is by Wilhelm de Klerk. It's called The Second Revolution, Afrikanerdom and the Crisis of Identity. Guess who knew that apartheid was going to end? The people who created it. We can't hold it. So what do we need to do? We need to figure out a way to control it after it's over. So y'all watch these movies with all these people and de Klerk got the Nobel Prize and he was so generous. They knew they couldn't hold it. Go to a university called Stellenbosch. That is the place where the Africana intellectuals hung out. I've been to Stellenbosch many times. They, they teach classes in Afrikaans. It's very interesting, right? So what do they do? They turn over power. Nelson Mandela is the first president. After Nelson Mandela, of course, you get the presidents we know. You get, after Mandela, you get the kid that when Mandela got locked up, this guy's father got locked up with him. They snuck this young boy out the country while they were in jail. 
Who did they send him to? The dude in Zambia who just made transition a few weeks ago, who I can, I'm glad to say I got a chance to shake his hand and have a conversation with him at the Steve Biko conference years ago. The man they called KK, Kenneth Kaunda. Kaunda gets young Tabo Mbeki, Govan Mbeki's son, out the country, gets him to England because while these boys is baking brick, or not brick, limestone. I've been to the limestone quarry on Robin Island. They in the tunnel that they done dug out, plotting, and then they say, one day the boy gonna be the president. These, this is in the middle of a part. This is the 1960s. You understand? We're not thinking about who's gonna get nominated for an Emmy. They thinking about 40 years from now, we're gonna be running this joint. Like, dude, you breaking limestone. I'm not thinking about today. You lost your damn mind. The struggle is alone. We gotta plot that and then work it back. They got this I went back, he was a child. Kenneth Cone that got him out of the country. Now, he was the president after Mandela. Mandela did not stay. Oh, you should stay. Hell no. This is a constitutional democracy. Here's the difference between the American Constitution, the South African Constitution. The American Constitution, deeply flawed 18th century document in need of major overhaul and revision, but since people think God wrote it, they don't wanna mess with it. They just wanna keep amending it. The South African Constitution is the best constitution in the world in terms of democracy because they wrote it after all the other constitutions. They read all the rest of them and said, where do we make mistakes? This is a good book by Bruce Ackerman. It came out two years ago called Revolutionary Constitutions, Charismatic Leadership and the Rule of Law. What Ackerman argues, he's a law professor, what he argues is when you see constitutions in post-World War II, you have charismatic leaders who lead their countries to independence. You got, you know, of course you got Gandhi, then you get Nehru, right? Um, uh, Abedakar, who was the uh, Dalit intellectuals over there fighting with Gandhi, Arundhati Roy has written about the Indian constitution is able to be implemented because the people engaged in the anti-colonial struggle trust Nehru. He says, you see something similar in South Africa, the people trust Mandela, but here's the difference. Mandela wasn't the architect. Remember the Afrikaners knew they was gonna have to give it up or turn it loose. So they put into place a way to maintain, what did the Afrikaners do before they give Mandela and them the keys? They unilateral disarm they all they give up all their nuclear weapons they negotiate to make sure the businesses in fact the saying you see in south africa is we gave them the crown but we kept all the jewels in it <laughs> in other words the economy <laughs> we're gonna hear mandela now everybody go vote you got your black finger you pushed it yeah we put an africana verse in there and now everybody got south south and y'all watch matt damon and morgan freeman playing soccer and think a rugby and you think you know what happened no they gave them the keys after they made sure the political economy would keep humming and who do you recruit into that to make sure that it happens the upper class black elite and here's where Jacob Zuma comes from. Zuma was locked up on Robben Island too. He's younger than those guys, but he was a, he was a prisoner as well. Zuma is from KwaZulu-Natal, he's Zulu. They have always been an inner tension in the ANC between the Zulu and the Kosa. In fact, I hate to say it, I'll use the derogatory term because some of y'all South Africans watching this know, y'all heard this. South Africa, sometimes they refer to the African National Congress as La Casa Nostra. <laughs> in other words, the Kosas run, and Mandela's a Kosa. You understand? Mbeki is a Kosa. Mufulani, who came after him, was a Kosa. Then comes Zuma, the first Zulu. And then the guy in there now, Cyril Ramaphosa, is a Kosa. The Zulu is like, look, let me tell y'all something. First of all, you Zulu, y'all lay down for the British. You punks, we fought the British. Every time you talk about South African resistance, Shaka 
Shaka Kosa. No, Shaka Zulu. In other words, we fought them. Y'all didn't fight them like we fought them. It's fast because that's technically not true, but it's also some enough truth in it. This is ethnic tension in South Africa. So what happens finally, Zuma is called by the South African Constitution. If y'all read the South African Constitution, uh, South African Constitution, it's a long document. It's brilliant. They have uh, seven or eight national languages that are all official languages. They say in there, nobody can be enslaved or suffer servitude. They fixed the, fifth, the 13th Amendment. They, they, their parliament has a threshold. I forget what the threshold is. There's a requirement that a certain percentage of the parliament be women. I mean, it's all in the domestic violence. I mean, everything you can think of that should be in a, they have a right to have a house. They have a right. Now that doesn't mean they've executed, but it's in the constitution. I have rights. No, and it says no one can deprive anyone, any citizen of their citizenship. You can't lose your citizenship. I was arrested. You're a citizen. Did you read the constitution? It says no one can be deprived of this. I mean, it's like, we're going to make sure that this thing gets to, so what do they do? They set up a court. And this is the other thing, I mean, we'll try to talk about this another day because I love it. The South African, the highest court in South Africa is the constitutional court. Uh, we've been to the constitutional court, we take students. Their Supreme Court, so to speak, their constitutional court is on something called Constitution Hill. Constitution Hill used to be the women's prison. That's where they had Winnie Mandela in an outdoor cage with a pot to pee in and no menstrual products. This is where they had Father Mamour and them. This is where they had Robert Sabukwe before they sent him to Robin Island. They took that hill turned it into, kept all the buildings, turned it into the Constitutional Court. In other words, they will never, they will, in, in the Constitution it says, we will never forget how we got here. In other words, our national sites, the day those white police slaughtered them kids in, in Soweto, Hector Peterson, them first one to die, that is now National Youth Day in South Africa. In other words, they, they took the days, the, the Sharp Bill massacre, all them days now become National Freedom Day, Constitution Day, anyway. This is the, they have accused Jacob Zuma of high crimes. They saying you done swindled money, you done stole money, state capture, fraud, corruption. And so they're trying him in South Africa. Oh, by the way, South Africa was the place that when the United States got rid of Aristide in Haiti and tried to take him to the Central African Republic, South Africa eventually said, no, nah, Aristide, you come here. In fact, they were lobbying with other African countries for Haiti to become a member of the African Union. Again, when you see them try to do something, you interfere. And the United States lobbied hard to make sure that didn't happen. Anyway, Zuma has now being investigated. The Constitutional Court of South Africa, and I read the brief, it's 127 pages. I'm, I'll pull it up now so I can say, I'll give you the title. This was the ruling they just handed down a couple of weeks ago. In the matter between the Secretary of the Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegations of state capture, corruption, and fraud in the public sector, including organs of state, and Jacob Zuma, Minister of Police, and the Helen Suzman Foundation, they decided June 29th, it is declared that Mr. Jacob Zuma is guilty of the crime of contempt of court for failure to comply with the order made in this court. In other words, we told you to come to the Constitutional Court and testify. You are now in contempt because you didn't come. So we're going to, we sentence you to 15 months in prison and you are ordered to submit yourself to the South African police service. And if you don't, the police are now ordered to arrest you. So what does Mandela, oh Mandela, my God. What does Zuma do? 
the night before the day before he's supposed to uh, he's in contempt he, he they will come get him he surrenders he goes to jail and right now i just watched cyril ramaphosa on um south african broadcasting company television ramaphosa just visited uh yesterday in eastern uh, in, in kwazulu natal because that's where the zulu are remember what i said man this is how i tie it all together very 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 quickly that anc the anti-apartheid organization that really was the one that filled the power vacuum they're the ones that the Afrikaners handed power over to in a negotiated way. They have an election, Mandela's elected. But remember, the ANC has the Kossas in it, but also the Zulus. They were all together in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But that ethnic tension, which you see in the election season, because Mandela isn't going unopposed. You got uh, Busta Lazy, who was ANC. Now he's over there. And then you got those white people who are not leaving. They're all, and most of them are in something called the DA, the Democratic Alliance. They want to be a party, and they're saying, we have to have real democracy. This is gangsterism, and all that rhetoric you hear. And you got the young people now that are like, you know what? Mandela is gone. We love Madiba. He's the man, but I still have no electricity or house. So therefore, I want the government. And one of their key leaders is also former ANC, was the head of the Youth League. They call themselves the Economic Freedom Fighters. And so it's like all these, now what you're seeing emerge in South Africa, in other words, is multi-party democracy on a better foundation than America has, the same tensions, but the, but, the, but the social structure it rests on is imperialism. All constitutions come out of that notion of private property, all those rules. They're trying to work it out. Oh, by the way, in the constitution of South Africa, they've got a role in there for indigenous leaders. South Africa is trying to work out a blueprint for something that hasn't worked anywhere in the world, and that's namely Western-style social structures. They haven't worked. So before you condemn Haiti, before you condemn Cuba, before you condemn South Africa, remember that unlike the United States of America, South Africa put its president on trial, and when he said he wasn't coming, they put his ass in jail. Now, before you say anything about all them Africans, now you go look and find your friend down there in Florida. And run around the country still telling that lie. And there's a whole ass emoluments clause in the damn federal constitution that is plain language. And you let him run a whole ass hotel down the street from the White House and he ain't in jail. Just understand, don't ever throw a rock from the United States of America because you live in a glass house. We'll end, we'll end, we'll end, we'll end, we can end with that on, on the contemporary and, stuff. And, and let the church say amen. Let's, amen. Let, let's say Baba Dick Gregory for next week because I want to spend time with him. Uh, okay. And, and yeah, yeah, we should. I don't want to shortchange that man's legacy because no. he deserves all of the flowers. No, that's right. Uh, and let's just, you know, honor John Henry Clark, John Henry Clark, who made yes. transition yesterday, uh, yes. 1998. And just say a few few things about you know the power of that. Uh, did you ever get a chance? I don't know if you ever never did, that. never did. And Which you is, know, this is again, you know, um, to be unconscious. Mm. You know, they say ignorance is bliss, right? But <laughs> it's just because you don't know, right? You yeah. don't know that you're ignorant, so you you don't know to be ashamed of your ignorance. But you know, I'm just I'm so grateful to be in this space right now to know the things I have the scales taken from my eyes to to be exploring the things that I'm exploring and my mind is just being like, mm. oh, it just it feels so good. Oh. But I also, you know, um, feel like I missed a lot of opportunities because I didn't know uh, the magnitude of even you know we just had a conversation about Paulie Murray. Damn, you know, oh, like, yeah. The thing. Y'all go, yeah, I got to sign up for narrative for that one. Yes. So so I'm just you know. 
Tell me. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student. No, we'll keep this one very brief because we've talked about him. When y'all go on the narrative side, you'll see we, he's littered a lot of places. So I'll just keep this very brief. Um, first of all, it is, there, there are several schools around the country that I said, you know, at some point in my life, it would be nice to be included on the faculty of a school, of that school. One of the reasons I like Tuskegee so much, for example, is this is a Native American name. Well, I'm gonna work at HBCU with at least a name that ain't white, you know, God bless General Oliver Oldest Howard, or not, but I know he was friends with Clinton Fisk and Robert E. Lee and all them, and y'all chose up sides from New York and came out fighting, and that's cool. Howard versus Hampton is funny to me because Samuel Chapman Armstrong and Oliver Oldest Howard were friends. At least Hampton ain't named <laughs> Armstrong, anyway. So Tuskegee is one, and one is Hunter College, where you work. Hunter College, and y'all go look at the narrative thing, because Paulie Murray's a graduate of Hunter College. And that, that story, we go into that in great detail. It's really something. But Hunter College is where John Henry Clark worked. So, I mean, you're on the same faculty as John Henry Clark, and John Henry Clark will always be, for me, like so many of us, like a grandfather. And I got to spend the last decade of his life, I got to spend a lot of time with him, you know, and uh, call him, you know, talk to him when I was seeing him, you know. And like I talked about before, we talked about this, and that's why I said I'll keep this short. Y'all can look at it. You know, I don't believe in wasting old folks' time. So I wouldn't ask him regular questions. I've been read what he's talking about and read who he said, and then come back and ask. But, and so he and I had, you know, we both Southerners, you know. So his, in fact, he's born not too far from where my mom was born, Alabama. He's Union Springs. My mom was from Opelika. So, you know, we know the same, you know. And so Columbus, Georgia, you know, he, he caddied there on that golf course for the military. You know, that's where he is buried. You know, that's where my mother, my mother met my father, Columbus, Georgia. My father was in the military. So, so Clark always had a special feel for him. And all of us love Clark because he was a first-rate mind, intellectual, uh, brilliant. And he said, all I ever wanted to be was a great classroom teacher. And I'll never forget when the first time I heard him say that in person, I was in New York. 145th and Convent, First World Alliance, sitting on the floor in front of him when he said that, and a light went on. It's my second year of law school. And I tell you who brought me up there, my brother, your colleague, who was in the Department of African and Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College, Tony Brown, who was getting his master's at UCLA, and I was at Ohio State in law school, and we would, we both worked for the NLFCP Legal Defense Fund that summer. Sherilyn Eiffel was a young attorney on that, on that, on that, on that staff at the time. And Tony took me up there. I was like, damn, man, yeah, mess me up. I'm going to finish this law degree, but I went, he's right. <laughs> and so Clark was that kind of guy. Uh, we could talk a lot. And again, go to narrative. Yeah, I, think I was going to say, we, we have had an extensive, but I just want, I wanted to, you know, kind of sit in that for a moment, the, yeah. the notion of being not just a great historian, but mm -hmm. a great teacher. And for all of the folk who are in this space right now, who, uh, you know, who are in systems that are literally stealing your spirit, because you know all of the things you want to impart on this next generation, but can't because of the system. What advice uh, using John Henry Clark as a as a kind of bellwether, as a kind of beacon, can can we impart on folk in terms of what he you know give us give us a breadcrumb that folk can follow, but also some some of his legacy that we can carry. Okay, I'll say it is. Couple of very quick things, and I'll give you all these books right now. Uh, Anna Swanson, who's still alive, she's in Atlanta. She was his secretary for years. She did a book called Dr. John Henry Clark, His Life, His Works, His Life, His Words, His Works. Um, she published this privately, but you know what? I'm going to reach out to um, Mother Anna because I suspect she wouldn't be mad maybe if narrative 
took on the exclusive life. Anyway, I'm just uh, we go. Yeah, I don't talk to mother Ed because you can't hardly get. Um, my friends at the African Heritage Studies Association have republished this, the legacy of John Henry Clark. This is the AHSA. Uh, they are now doing it. Uh, Shelby Lewis and Earl Clowney, also my dear friend, Afia Zakia, they've done this. This is one of his last books, Note for, Notes for an African World Revolution, Africa at the Crossroads. You see him, all of these people, he didn't know Lumumba, but um, uh, Garvey's people, he did, in fact, Marcus Garvey in the Vision of Africa with Amy Jakes Garvey. Um, Amy, uh, Mars Garvey's uh, widow, but anyway, and he knew Malcolm. That's a whole nother story. Let's that. So very quickly, the breadcrumbs. Let me give you just a couple. One is very basic rule that Clark observed his whole life. You can be more than one thing, because Clark hung out with the Young Socialist League, the Communist Party. You know, he got in the whole thing with Freedom Ways back and forth. Magazine, very important. All his people, he helped found Freedom Ways, and then eventually they split. He was not an ideologue. Clark said, you know, I believe in African people everywhere. I'm a Pan-Africanist. I'm a socialist. I see no contradictions. <laughs> you know, he said, you know, he called all the Western organized religions or the Western practiced religions, male chauvinist murder cults. But he said, I was a Sunday school teacher in the Baptist church. So I'm not going to throw out the Christians just because Christianity is a male chauvinist murder cult. <laughs> but I'm still going to go to church. He wears a suit and tie. He was buried in a full African booba and all them clothes. But John Henry Clark, you see me at a certain time. He wears African clothes. But in other words, there are no contradictions in that. He said, we don't ever forget that your people are your people. You find your people where they are. You build community. Don't let something like what you said and I said fall. Oh, that's number one. The second one is this. Second of two is this. And I learned this from him and I try to practice it, watching him more. And then we would talk about it. He would, Dr. Clark used to always say, when I had students, young people, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was one of his students. How are you at? That's a whole nother story. I mean, the summer programs back in the 60s, he has a whole nother thing, right? And, 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 and Kareem talks about that. He's written about John Henry Clark. So at any rate, on the shoulders of giants, look for that book by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was growing up, Power Memorial High School, Lou Alcindor, when he was in them summer programs. Dr. Clark would say, them teenagers, they watching a different, set of things that I did. They listened to different music. He said, but I felt like if I could tell a story to grab their interest, I could hold their interest and then I could teach my lesson. But to get to the lesson, you got to tell them a story. <laughs> I learned that from John. And you got to tell them a story that they want to follow. And so for me, that second of the two things, telling a story leads to the importance of helping people learn something they don't know by starting with something they know. And I think analogy is one of the most powerful tools teachers have. You know what I'm saying, Yeah, well, this is kind of like that, but let me tell you how it's different. Okay, now I wanna hear, why? Because the thing I know, I know. Oh, that's different, right, okay. So yeah, D Jacob Zuma, Donald Trump. Oh, I didn't even get into, look. Uh, mm, see, I, I know it's time to go. We got, I, I gotta tell you this quick 30 second story about Zuma. Because I met Jacob Zuma a couple of times, one time at the presidential palace, because his wife, one of his wives, and we talked about this before, came over to Howard. She was the youngest wife. And so we met her. And then when we went to South Africa. One of the Howard students kept in contact with her, called her while we were over there, and she invited us to the presidential palace. We sitting there having tea, and here comes Jacob Zuma at the end of the day. We was like, oh, Sawabona Baba. He's like, oh, what y'all doing? He sat and we just chopped it up with Jacob Zuma. Now, where else does that happen? These are Africans, man. It's crazy. Anyway. Like the third time I saw Jacob Zuma, we were over there for the 100th anniversary of the African National Congress. I watched Jacob Zuma come into an auditorium with thousands of people. 
even then he was in battle. Jacob Zuma said, for example, HIV, AIDS, you know what? If you take a hot enough shower, you can wash out of Zuma. What are you doing, man? I mean, this guy thing, they accused him of being younger. I mean, all kinds of stuff. He's in battle. Zuma walks in this thing, thousands of people. I'm telling you about South Africa. A baby, I don't care. Everybody there can sing. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And all them struggle songs, they sing them like they were there. I'm looking at 12 year old singing, you weren't on Robin Island? I don't care, I know this song. I watch Zuma come in, come on stage, everybody's there, all these thousands of people, Zuma, sure thy love's me. And then, I'm like, a whole place turned into a choir. This was the power of Jacob Zuma. Anytime Zuma get in trouble, he goes straight to the culture. When y'all see Donald Trump get on the microphone and start whispering, I'm convinced that's not just, he doing that. I mean, and then they came and they told us, it's not our country, it's your country. And those people are hearing what they wanna hear. Never underestimate the power of charisma which in the best of hands might give you a Franklin Roosevelt talking on the radio. My dad and them listening to them in East Tennessee on the radio with a fireside chat. In the worst hands, they will tear your damn building down. Never underestimate the power of charisma for a politician. I, that's my Jacob Zoom. So I was like, damn. Anyway, so that's why movie stars can run for president and TV hosts. America's in trouble. Anyway, so. No, I, I'm just trying. What's the antidote? What's the antidote? What, what are what we, we doing? Okay. All right, what we doing? Because because I listen, I could listen to Jacob Zuma do that all day long. That don't mean I'm gonna back him on this thing. I'm sorry, bro. You gotta go to jail because your courts, unlike the United States, actually work. <laughs> listen, um, I can't thank you enough. Ah, uh, you. thank you. Uh, I, I really can't. It's every day. It's humbling to mm. be in this space with you. Oh, and, uh, the same here. Thank you, and thank you for building that world for real, y'all. Please spread the word on narrative. I was on there yesterday. Karen's like, yeah, don't you? I'm checking it out every time, y'all. It's a whole world. And we just getting started. Just getting started. Yeah. I mean, and Thank that's you. the other thing. No, I mean, listen, we're building this. And and I, I can't think enough the people because it's being built because of the people. The people yes. are, are building it. And this is a long journey, as you said. We we acting like China. This ain't about tomorrow. No question. It's about next week. You know, this is about a hundred years after we're both here, gone, thousand That's years right. after we're both gone, That's having right. a space that will tell the truth, will tell it unvarnished, will will give people insight and wisdom that they can carry with them to ask those questions that everybody should ask. And we're building that now because it doesn't damn exist. And that to me is the, the biggest travesty that right, right. this doesn't exist. This should be already here. here. So That's right. We shouldn't have to do it. But let's be clear. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Maybe. All right. Love you too. Have a wonderful day. Uh, thank you, everyone who joined us. Uh, hit the like button, subscribe Please. to the channel, and join Narrative. It's your duty.